So how's the snow treating everybody? Welcome to spring in Idaho. <laughs> if you have your Bibles with you, open up the book of Leviticus. And we'll take a look at uh, what the Lord has for us tonight. I don't know how many got a chance to meet. We have special guests here tonight. Kathy's mom, May, and sister Lori are here with us. So if you get a chance, give them a hug and say hey. <clears throat> After service tonight, we're going to have, in honor of sunny spring and 70 degree weather, we're going to have root beer floats. If you want yours warm, sorry. <laughs> we're just going to pretend in our mind it's nice out. Sunny, pretty. Is it? Well, then we're right on, we're right on time for them root beer floats. <laughs> All right, check it out. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 24. You remember last week when we were going through the book, we were talking about the eight prescribed times that God laid out in his word, the appointed feast for his, uh, for his people. And we, as we looked at it, we see that God specifically chose eight times that were to focus on uh, God's ultimate plan for mankind. We see the first three feasts lay out for us. And Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and, and uh, the, the Feast of first fruits. As we look at those, we see that each one of those pictured first the work of what Christ would do when he came. The, the Passover, Jesus Christ died on the 14th of Nisan. On Passover, he died. He was buried, placed in the ground during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the Feast of First Fruits, he rose from the dead. On the day of Pentecost, the fourth feast, 50 days later, he poured out his spirit on, on the church, and the church was born. All four of those feasts, God's appointed times that he laid out for his people. The three remaining feasts are yet future. And so we talked a little bit about what they could be, what they might point to. Uh, they are the, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, which we believe points to the rapture. We have the Day of Atonement, which speaks of that time when atonement is being made, looking at the tribulation period as God's going to work among the nation of Israel. And once again, they'll put their eyes on Him. The Scripture tells us in Zechariah that they will look upon Jesus Christ as one whom is pierced, and they'll, they'll see him as their son, their missed Messiah. They'll proclaim him as their king, and that's the, the point, the purpose behind the Day of Atonement. And then, uh, then finally, coming up at the end is the Feast of Tabernacles, looking forward to the millennial reign of Christ, uh, when we are all going to have a new place to dwell. And the scripture indicates for us as it continues on, that, uh, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that kind of lays to rest the, the calendar, what God is, had laid out for us in Leviticus chapter 23. Chapter 24, he's going to focus yet again on, that, on a similar subject or uh, something that we've been talking about all the way through the book, and that's holiness. Over and over and over again, God says, Be ye holy as I am holy. Be set apart. We talked about that, being set apart from the old life to God. Set apart from the old and to the new. The book of Revelation, Jesus Christ will declare when he gives all the creation to his father, see I make all things new. 
the redemption of all things, redeeming us from the old life and ushering in that new life. And so he's going to focus in on that concept. As we look at chapter 24, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. So he's going to begin in chapter 24 talking about holy oil. This holy oil that was set apart to be used in the lampstand in the tabernacle. So you might remember when we talked about the tabernacle. Tabernacle had one door. When you walked in that one door, directly in front of you would be the veil into the Holy of Holies. And sitting in front of that veil would be the table of incense, the golden altar. To the right would be a table that had on it 12 loaves of bread. On top of each of those, two stacks of six would be frankincense. They would be sitting there on the right side as you face in. On your left would be the candle, the candlestick, the, the lampstand. Uh, oil candlestick that was to be burning evening and morning, continually, never go out. The only time that that would be put out is when they were moving camp. If they packed everything up and moved, then they would relight it again when they arrived and set up the tabernacle wherever the new site was. So as we take a look at it, he's calling for holy oil. Listen, this holy oil, this, this stuff that was used to be the only light that anyone could see with within the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle had several coverings on the outside. Wood walls covered with gold, covered with uh, purple, scarlet, blue, and, uh, and linen thread with intricate designs of cherubim on the inside over the top. And then that's covered by uh, ram skin, ram skin dyed red, finally badger skin. Remember, when we look at the outside, it doesn't look like anything special. Just a, you know, dirty old dark tent. It's only when you got inside that you could see the real value. And a lot of ways, when we talked about the tabernacle, we said that's what our relationship with Christ is. Looking from the outside, it's just a, a dreary, dark-looking thing. What's the big deal? But when we come inside, then we can see the beauty. What is it? How did Paul say it? The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, for they're spiritually discerned. That when we, before we have Jesus Christ in our life, we don't have the ability to fully understand the grasp the beauty of all that God's done for us. So when you come into the tabernacle, the priest, and only the priest, would be able to see it, but there was only one source of light in the whole place. That candle stick, that lampstand, the golden lampstand. And when we studied the tabernacle, we said that the golden lampstand was a picture of Christ, right? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He's the light. He's the one that, that shines, that bears forth. Now, in that lampstand, what was it that burned? The oil. What is oil throughout the scripture? What is it a picture of? Oil throughout the scripture is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that which enables us to see, grasp, and understand. So in order to serve, because when we come into the tabernacle, that was a place of service. In order to serve, in order to understand, in order to reap all that God has for us, we have to have that lamp. That lamp had to have oil. And that oil was going to be provided by the people. 
They brought the oil in. They would go out and gather olives. There's a specific way that it was to be done. And they would crush, beat the olives, extract the oil, and bring that oil as an offering to the Lord. That they were a part of what God was doing. That they were a part of what was happening. God wanted the people, hey, here's what I need. We're going to talk about holy oil. We're going to talk about holy bread. We're going to talk about a holy name. And God is requiring the people to have a responsibility in each one of those situations. Bring me the oil. Bring the oil that the, that the lamp would light, that the lamp would be there, that they would be able to receive uh, all that it had for them. For without that oil, without the light, no one could see. No one would be able to see. So they're to bring that oil. It says in verse 3, Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron will be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. And it shall be a statute forever in all your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. The high priest made sure that the wicks were trimmed, that there was oil in the cups, that there was light in order to serve. So when we look at that in the Old Testament sense, we see very clearly a picture of Christ. But what, what does the Bible tell us now? Folks, the Bible tells in the book of Revelation that that lampstand is also indicative of something else. There are seven golden lampstands in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is walking in the midst of them. And we don't have to wonder what it is because he tells us what they are. He says the seven gold lampstands are the churches. And Jesus Christ is fulfilling the role as the high priest in the midst of the lampstands, making sure that the light is always burning bright. Ensuring that the cups are full of oil and that the wicks are trimmed so that there is always that bright light shining forth. You remember what Jesus said of the church of Ephesus in that letter. He said, listen, unless you repent and do the works that you did before, then I'm going to take away your lampstand. If you're not going to give light, if all you are going to do is smoke and, and there's no oil and there's a refusal to, to follow those precepts that God says, I'm going to, I'll remove the lampstand. I'll take the lampstand out of the way. And that lampstand will no longer be there. And you and I know today, Ephesus doesn't exist anymore. Ephesus is gone. That lampstand, for all intents and purposes, is snuffed out. The Lord, as the high priest, is doing the work of Aaron, just like what we're reading here. And he says, bring me the oil. Bring me the oil. Bring those crushed, beaten olives that we would allow that oil of God to make us flexible. Otherwise, we become hard and crusty. And we, we, are, we stop being good for much. We need the oil of the Holy Spirit softening our heart. We need the water of the Word of God making us clean, enabling us to be prepared for service. And so as the Lord lays out this call for the people, hey, bring me the oil. You are a part of the process. We are all a part of the process of what God does in church on any given Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. We're a part of the process. Why? Because we're supposed to bring oil with us. 
We're supposed to bring that Holy Spirit. I shared with you before. I used to come to service. I'd come to church and I'd say, Oh, who's teaching? Oh, I, 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 oh, don't make me have to listen to him. You know, I can't receive anything from him. I'm, I'm smarter than he is. And then I'd come in and sit down with a sour attitude. How much do you think I got out of service? I'm like a prophet when I do that. I'm like a prophet. I come in and say, oh, this is going to be terrible. And what do you know? It turns out to be that way. So when we look at that, when we see, we want to realize, hey, God wants us to come with our oil prepared. What's the oil? A sign of the Holy Spirit in our life. That the Holy Spirit has filled us up. That the Holy Spirit is with us, upon us, so that when we come in, are we, are we prepared to receive? Well, sure we are. We're ready to receive, and we're also ready to do what? To give. Folks, when we, we, we say that the Scripture calls us to love like Christ, right? That they will know we are His disciples. How? By our love one for another. Well, how do I express that love? Romans 5.1 tells me that the love of God is poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit. If I'm not anointed in the Spirit, if I'm not spending time rubbing alongside of Christ, if I'm not spending time focusing on those things in my life, if that's not going on, when that doesn't happen, then I don't have anything to give. It's just empty. It's just gone it's just, there's just dryness so god laid out for the people bring the oil bring the oil bring the holy spirit with you bring the oil that there will be light the ability to see in the place of service and as jesus trims the wicks we'll find him do that perfect work so first part leviticus chapter 24 Holy oil, the people were to be a part of that process. Now he's going to take a look at the bread, the showbread. It says, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. Here's an interesting little point of Bible trivia. You'll notice written in that verse, the word in ephah is in italics. The ephah being in italics means that it's not there. What it literally says is take two tenths and make a loaf. So rabbis have been arguing since the dawn of time, two tenths of what? How big are the loaves? Nobody really knows. Uh, there's several, you know, people, the rabbis that talk about, well, it's this, it's that, it's the other. It may very well be. Uh, the point is it didn't really matter. What mattered was that the people brought the materials, that the materials were blended together into one loaf. That they are blended together. Now, there would be six of these singular loaves, two stacks, making up 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel. He goes on to tell us then, uh, after verse 5, beginning in verse 6, he says, You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you will put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial and an offering made by fire to the Lord. And every Sabbath, he will set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. What happens? Here, inside, no one was allowed to go into the tabernacle but the priests. But there were 11 other tribes of Israel <coughs> that never had an opportunity to see inside. So there is what's called the table of showbread, the table of presence. 
And on the table of presence, there would be one loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes of Israel that they symbolically are present. Why? So that when the high priest is in there doing service, giving his prayers, making intercession, mediating for the people, all he had to do was look to the right and he would be reminded why he's there. The 12 tribes, my brethren, that's why I'm here. Though the other tribes wouldn't be able to enter in, they would be seen by the 12 loaves of bread. They would be born, or, or he would bear them upon his shoulders as the breastplate would be held up by the two shoulders that had six tribes listed on each one. And then he would bear them on his heart, loving, caring for the people because across the breastplate that he wore, would be the 12 stones of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that there would be a presence of them there in the only place that they could go and see God. You and I are spoiled today. Hey, if you want to hear from the Lord, if you want to talk to God, you don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go to the tabernacle. You don't have to offer a bunch of sacrifices and hope maybe that God hears your cry. All you have to do is enter boldly into the throne room of God. Enter into that throne of grace by which we've been saved, that we can make our petitions known. At that time, the only one that could go into the presence of God was the high priest, and he could only go once a year. And that was it. The rest of the time was service. What was going on in the service? We already talked about the light of the menorah providing light. Jesus said that he is the light of the world, the oil of the Spirit, giving us the ability to see and understand what's going on. The 12 loaves representing the people, what was the golden altar for? That's where the priest would go to pray for the people. So that the priest would not get all focused on his self. So that the priest wouldn't get all wrapped up around his own problems. He had all of these reminders of the people. The people in the, in the 12 loaves. The people on his shoulders. The people on his heart because he was the one to go and mediate for the people he was to represent the people to god and god to the people to take that word that god laid out for him and to share it with him so that was the work that work of the high priest and you see again what were the people to bring the people were to bring the flower for the loaves. The people were to bring the flour so that those loaves, could, so that they are a part of the process. It wasn't just something that they received, it was something that they were perpetually a part of. They were perpetually a part of service, a part of what God was doing, that they would provide, that they would bring oil, that they would bring the bread, that they would provide that that the priests would make the twelve loaves. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons. They will eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statue. So they're going to eat those twelve loaves. The twelve loaves would sit there in the tabernacle for one week until the next Sabbath. On the next Sabbath, he would take a memorial piece, a sliver from each one of the twelve loaves. He would take the frankincense he would burn the frankincense and those, the pieces, the, the pieces from each of the loaves as a burnt offering unto the Lord, consecrating the people to God, 
Then the priest would take the rest of the twelve loaves, and that was their bread for that week. And then twelve more loaves were brought in. And twelve more loaves would be set up, and the same thing would take place week in and week out. Then as we look at chapter 10, it says, Now, the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. So now we first we were talking about holy oil, then we're talking about holy bread, now we've got to fight. In the book of Leviticus, there are two times throughout the scripture that God kind of seems like he stops what he's doing and gives us an example of what happens when people are are getting kind of off track. And in this example, first we talked about holy oil. We talked about holy bread, bread set apart to provide a picture for us of something else. And now he's going to talk about his holy name. His holy name. We have this guy who's an Israelite woman's son and an Egyptian was his father. The Bible doesn't tell us if his father was there anymore. His father might not have ever came with him. But he is a part of what's known as the mixed multitude. The mixed multitude were those who saw the mighty works of God and went, but they went just because of the miracles they saw and their hearts were never given over to the Lord. So as soon as things got tough, the mixed multitude would begin to rumble. The rumble would begin with them and then spread out to the other children of Israel. Now some of the mixed multitude are going to put their faith and trust in Yahweh. They're going to trust the God of Israel. Others never will. And there'll be a thorn of contention all the way through. It's not any different today, is it? Hey, the world's full of people that that bear the banner Christian and cause a lot of grief for those of us who really are. For example, there's that fella. I don't know if you guys had a chance to to see on the news. There was a a man who was burying his son who had died in Iraq in a church from Kansas. Uh, I think the pastor's name is Phelps. He brings his group out and they carry picket signs and talk about how it's good that his son's dead. It's God's judgment for all these things that he's doing wrong. And they stand out there and pick it and proclaim the name of Christ that they're all doing it in the name of God. That's a, I don't know where they find it. It ain't in the scripture anywhere, all the stuff they talk about. All of their issues, all the things they do. It's not what God's word calls us. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. It is not loving to go to a funeral of a man's son and scream about how he deserved it. I don't care how you slice it. You're not reading the same Bible I am. But when a newspaper and a news crews go and they focus in on those guys and they talk about it, what do they call them? The church. Christian. And then when we gather together or you meet someone or you talk to them and you say, I'm a Christian, they put you in the same category as those knuckleheads. Same place. Mixed multitude. They, they follow a form of godliness but deny its power. They're not real. They're make-believers. In fact, the whole book of Jude is all about that. Being make-believers. Not real. And that's what the Lord's going to focus in on here as He talks about His name. The name of the Lord. Now, it says in verse 10, 
uh, he fought, he got in a fight with a, a man of Israel inside the camp. And the Israelite woman's son, verse 11, blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Now to me, I don't know if you catch it, but that's pretty incredible, that whole concept. Okay, they're having a fight, and this guy blasphemes the name of the Lord. Now, for you and I to blaspheme the name of the Lord, it would be much more difficult for us. In fact, to the, the Jewish scribe, the name of God was so holy, they would never say it. They would bow their head and say, Yashem, the, the name. Or they would write, Adonai, which means Lord. But they would not pronounce the name of God. They would only copy the consonants, and that's all we know today. It's called the impronounceable name of God, the Tetragrammaton, the YHVH, Yahweh, where we get the idea that maybe the name of God is Yahweh. Others say, no, the name of God is Jehovah. It's based on those four consonants. But this young man, he, he took the name, God's name, and he cursed God. Now, every Israelite was present around Mount Sinai. You remember Mount Sinai, right? They're still there. And God spoke from Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments. And one of those Ten Commandments was not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Which literally means not to profane God's name. Not to, not to curse the name of God. Or use it as a curse. And so this guy, he's mad, he's angry, he's half Jewish, and he, he curses God's name. And the people... They didn't come down on him with a bunch of rocks. They didn't circle around him. They didn't stone him first and figure out what to do later. What did they do? They sought the mind of God. Lord, what, what do we do? Where do we go? A lot of times people say things, and maybe by the end of tonight you'll say, you know, I don't understand anything Jackie said. I have good news for you. The Bible says not to lean into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll direct your path. That we lean in to the, to the Lord. That we lean in to God. So they, they bring Him before the Lord that they might know the mind of God. Moses was so humble, he wasn't afraid to say, I don't know what to do. I just know who knows the answer. And we need to go see Him. We need to bring it before the Lord. We need to talk to the Lord that we might know the mind of of God. In fact, in Psalm uh, Psalm 25, you can flip there with me or you can wait. I'm going to get there sooner or later. Psalm 25 lays out for us, I think, uh, an interesting verse that we can glean uh, part of this concept from Psalm. Psalm 25, verse 9, says, The humble he guides in justice... And the humble he teaches his way. See, Moses was willing to say, Hey, I, I want what God wants. 
Not what I think, not what I feel, but what is God saying? What is God doing? Leaning to the Lord, pressing into God, and desiring that God would show them. A lot of people might say, well, it would be easier if God just laid it all out. No, it wouldn't be... It may be easier, but it certainly wouldn't be better. Why? What if God's people never had to pray? What if God's people never had to search the scriptures? What if God's people never had to press into the Holy Spirit for an answer? What if God's people never had to seek the counsel of people wiser than them? How would they ever grow? They never grow. So every once in a while, God stirs up the pot. And he causes his people to scurry around, search the scriptures, pray, press into him, lean upon one another to find God's counsel to guide them through. And that's how we grow. And when we refuse that process, we won't grow. We'll stay stagnant. And in that, in that place of stagnancy, we, we will feel comfortable. We'll feel complacent. And our soft, supple wineskin will turn hard. And when God wants to pour in a fresh move of His Spirit, what happens? The wineskin breaks. Because it's rigid. We've never done things that way before. Never seen that before. And so we get caught up in that place. Folks, that's how... Churches just kind of fade away because the Spirit comes along to do a fresh move, a new move, but we're rigid. I like the old ways. I don't want to change. I don't want to adjust. I don't want to see God do anything different. And that's okay. God's still going to do what God's going to do. But what happens to us? Well, we end up just kind of moving off to the side. And the move of God continues on. Now, I'm not saying that you're lost or salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about being in a place where God is doing a fresh work. So we want to have the heart of Moses. Hey, I'm not sure what to do. I know what God's word says, but I want to hear from the Lord. Lord, what do you want from us in this situation? And so he's going to bring it before the Lord. And God's going to tell him. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said... Go outside the camp, take outside the camp him who is cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. So the people who made the accusation were required to lay their hands on, and in accordance with the book of Deuteronomy, pick up the first stones and begin the work. We don't have to do that today, right? When we talk about capital punishment today, how does that occur? We have a jury of peers, a jury that's far removed from the process, who will stand up and say, hey, guilty, not guilty. If someone's given the death penalty, what more do they have to do with it? They're, they, it's like, Pilate, wash my hands of it, I go my way. But God's plan was, listen, if you are going to bring a man and charge him with something that carries the crime, capital punishment, that, that they'll be put to death, then you... We'll put your hands on him and he will see your face and know that you are his accuser. And it had to be more than one, two or three, the Bible said. You place your hands on him and then the whole congregation 
All the people had to come and be a part of the process. A lot of people get the idea that capital punishment is about a deterrent. I don't know that that works as a deterrent. I I mean, I don't think people care one way or the other. If they're going to do something wrong, they're going to do something wrong. What does it work as? It works as upholding of justice. What's our problem? We don't have the ability to, to do it right. We're not righteous judges, right? Never have been. Who was the last righteous judge that walked on the face of the earth? Jesus Christ. What we do to him? <laughs> oh, yeah. Karat. We cut him off. We put him to death. So when we look at that, God's ways are perfect. If we apply God's ways across the board perfectly, then we'd have justice. And the lesson that would be taught would be to uphold the name of God. You and I, sometimes we read these stories and we think, oh my gosh, that's pretty harsh. We don't really know exactly what took place and what was done, but I know this. Whether a man dies physically or not has nothing whatsoever to do with his spiritual state with God. That throughout the scriptures, don't we read of people that God took? Didn't John tell us that there's a sin unto death? That there's a point where God will allow someone to go, and then finally the Lord will take them? The most commentators say that that's because he, God doesn't want them to go so far. So he, he brings them early. I don't know. I know Ananias and Sapphira are too. I know Nadab and Abihu, we just read about them. They're the other story in Leviticus. They're two. This fellow's one. What is their eternal state? I don't know. You and I don't have the ability to make that judgment. Who does? God. Does God know what he's doing? Yeah. Will it be righteous? Yes. Can we trust him? Of course. So we place... That person, that soul, that being in God's hands. And we say, Lord knows. But God wanted his people to know, if you do this, then that will happen. If God stood before you and laid it all out for you, and you make the choice to break it, who's responsible? Well, I'm responsible. I made the choice, right? I made the choice to follow down that road. When God took the children of Israel and he divided them and he, into this valley, and on one mountainside he had all the priests shout all the blessings, and on the other mountainside he had all the priests shout the cursings. And God said, if you obey, blessing. If you disobey, cursing. If you obey, life. If you disobey, death. God said, choose. And then he added, choose life. God wants life. So he lays out that choice for the children of Israel. And that same choice is is given to us today the same way. What is the wages of sin? What does the Bible say? The wages of sin are death. Every single time. So if I choose to live a life of sin and it leads me down a road to death, that was a path I chose, right? Sure. So, we want to choose life. We don't want to be like the mixed multitude that 
that is always finding a reason to complain or doubt God or not believe God or curse God's name. So the Lord lays out this is what was to be done. Then he's going to tell them, listen, I have some other things I want to tell you. Verse 15. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord will surely be put to death. All the congregation will certainly stone him, the stranger, as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he'll be put to death. And then God's going to reveal his mind. He's going to try to lay out for him. Here's my will in this situation, right? Don't lean in your own understanding. Do what? In all your ways, acknowledge him. And God directed their path. Now the Lord's going to lay out his mind. He says in verse 17, Whoever kills any man shall be put to death. Whoever kills an animal will make it good. Animal for animal. If a man causes defigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. It's called Lex Talianus in the Latin. It means the law of retaliation. Most people read this and they see cruelty because they don't understand what God was telling them. God was telling them the punishment must fit the crime. He was saying, listen, if someone causes an accident and breaks your brother's leg, it's not okay for you to kill him. Because our habit is to expand, to carry it further To be harsher. You blacken my eye, I'll blacken two of yours. You call me a name, I'll call you a worse name. Isn't that what we do? If if you listen, the whole world, the whole Cold War, what was it on? Oh, well, the United States built a nuke, we'll build two. Oh, you build two, we'll build four. You build four, we'll build eight. When's it stop? It will never stop. Because that's not Lex Talionis. Let's tell you honest, punishment fits the crime. If you do this, then all that can be a part is the other. Now, when we look at Lex Talionis, God was not saying that if I give you a, a broken bone, then you're going to come and break mine. He's saying whatever punishment takes place cannot exceed the same thing that was done. Now, all throughout Leviticus, we already read, for every crime, civil and legal, the Lord would lay out for them that there was a restitution that could be paid. There was money that could be given based on whatever was thought to, to have been lost, that all those things could be worked out. Keep in mind, the nation of Israel at this time, up until, well, really up until uh, Rome took control, there's no prisons The legal system was all handled between one another, and it worked. I don't know if you checked lately, but our legal system is not all that great. Seems like we send criminals to a special college to go learn how to do it better, meaner, nastier. Then we turn them loose and wonder how come they got better, meaner, and nastier. Well, they went to school of hard knocks. They got trained up and could move, move forward and do what they wanted. So the Lord lays out Lex Talionis, the law 
of retaliation. That's the way we want to understand it. The penalty must fit the crime. Verse 21, whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man will be put to death. He's saying there's a difference between men and animals. Now, I don't want to step on any animal lover's toes, but a baby harp seal is not the same thing as a baby. It's not the same. So, if we want to picket baby harp seals being clubbed to death in Alaska or wherever they did that, then we ought to also take up the cause of the babies. But to take up the cause of an animal and then say that babies, it doesn't matter, the Lord says our, our priorities are, are flopped and you've exchanged the creature for the Creator. So, as he lays this out for us, that's the point he's making. Hey, crimes against men are different. He's not saying that there's no such thing as a crime against an animal, did he? No, he said there is crimes against animals. But it's not the same thing, and so it doesn't carry the same kind of penalty. And then verse 23, Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed, and they stoned him with stones, so the children of Israel did what the Lord commanded them. So they move forward in obedience to what God called them to do. And I, I'm not sure what the result is. Because we don't get to see that part. In other words, what, what did that mean to the other people in the camp? Did they revere, give reverence to the name of the Lord from that point forward? I don't know. We're not going to see another event in the book of Leviticus. We're not going to see that. And the Lord in chapter 25 is going to point to something much more pleasant to talk about. He's going to talk about the year of Jubilee. You ever heard of that? I think we should institute it. (laughs) We'll declare today the year of Jubilee. How's that sound? Well, here, I'll explain it to you and we'll get there. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and said... Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, listen, this is important. When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Did you catch it? He said, when, not if. He didn't say, if you come to the land, he said, when. That must give Moses some assurance when we get to the next book that we'll be studying in a few weeks. And we begin to read how the children of Israel were afraid to enter into the land. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But God said to Moses, when you get in, they'll get in. Someone else is going to take them, but they're going to get in. And whose land is it? Listen, when we look at chapter 25, God's going to settle the Middle East dispute once and for all. He's going to settle out who the land belongs to, who the people belong to. He's going to settle all that. In fact, in chapter uh, 25, verse 2, he begins with saying that he owns the land. In case you didn't think that that was clear enough, if you move ahead to verse 23, it says, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. Who owns the land? God. You ever wonder why on the face of the earth 
More wars have been fought in that region than any place else on the planet. I have been there. Hey, it's nice, but it's, there's way more beautiful places. There's places way greater resources, greater wealth. Why so many battles? In the city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means, city of peace. More wars have been fought outside its gates than any other place on earth. Why? Because it's God's city. Why does everybody want it? Why does everybody want their peace? Why does everybody want their ownership? And over and over again that battle takes place. But God says, the land is mine. Verse 2, he said, I will give it to you. And when I give it to you, you'll keep a Sabbath. The rule is six days work, one day rest. The Sabbath He says in in verse 3, Six years you will sow your field. Six years you will prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there will be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. For the land and a Sabbath unto the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you will not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. So what's God say? When you come into the land, you'll work that land six years, and the seventh year, you just let it be. You don't go out and harvest whatever grows. The Lord's going to tell them, whatever grows, you can go pick, and, and you can eat it, but you can't bring in a harvest and sell it. You could take whatever the land naturally produces, and that'll be your food, and that which carries you over until the next harvest that would take place. Six years worked the land. The seventh year, you let the land lie fallow. Seems like in the history of the United States, we learned that lesson at some time or another. You ever heard of the Dust Bowl? Where literally the land was just robbed of all nutrients. And so we enter into this Dust Bowl, Great Depression era, where... When the land lies fallow, it gathers again the nutrients and it's once again able to produce. The Lord laid out for his people, six years, you work it, seventh year, you let it be. Four, 490 years from the day they arrive in the land, the children of Israel never once did it. And they never obeyed until after the Babylonian captivity. And then they made some loopholes so that they could work their way through it. See, they'd work their land for six years. In the seventh year, they'd sell their land to an Arab or a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew. And they worked the land. But I didn't work the land. Somebody else did it. The Lord laid it out for them. Hey, six years, then you give the land, it's one year rest. Look what it says. It's not just the land. He goes on to tell us in verse 6. And the Sabbath produce of the land will be food for you, for your male servants, female servants, your hired men, the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in the land, all its produce shall be for food. And you shall count seven Sabbath years... For yourself, seven times seven years, 
And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Here we come to the year of Jubilee. Then you will cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month. Now, folks, we just studied it. 10th day of the seventh month. 10th of Tishri. What day is that? What feast? The day of atonement. On the day of atonement, the day when repentance has been made, when their sins have been cleansed, they would sound the trumpet for the year of Jubilee. And all your debts would go away. All of them. Whatever you lost would be restored. The restoration of all things would occur in the year of Jubilee. So we take a look at what the scripture lays out for us. It says, now, as you cause this to the, the trumpet to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all the land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all its inhabitants the year of jubilee what an incredible thing you know it's interesting because it's almost impossible to track the years of jubilee and their history well i mean for example the last one that we can really point to and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that took place was in 1393 B.C. That was a long time ago. But it's interesting, because if we go from that date, and we count, and we may be right or wrong in our reckoning, but as we count it, you come to the 29 A.D. as a year of Jubilee. Not the next one, just as a year of Jubilee. 29 AD. Something happened during that year that's kind of cool. 29 AD was the beginning of this guy's ministry. He would minister for three years among the people. When he began his ministry, he would go into a little town called Nazareth. Nazareth means the branch. And he would Go to the synagogue in that place. In Luke chapter 4, if you want to look there with me, we can read about what it was that he said from that place on the year of Jubilee. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. He was handed a book, the prophet of Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he shut up the book, and he said, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't it interesting, if our calculations are right, that was a year of jubilee, to proclaim liberty, 
Literally, in the Hebrew, that word means to sound the trumpet. To sound the trumpet of liberty. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That was the year. The year when Jesus began His public ministry uh, as a foreshadowing of the great year of Jubilee to come. Because the day is coming when all debts are forgiven and the land will return to its rightful place and Jesus Christ will rule and reign from the throne of David just like the Word of God declares to us. So we see the proclamation of the year of Jubilee to proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you will return to his possession and each of you shall return to his family. Everybody gets their stuff back. If you were really poor and you couldn't make it and you had to sell the the family farm, in the year of jubilee, the family farm came back to the family. Well, maybe you were gone, but it came back to the family. And so the land would always stay in that tribe's name. It would never go outside of that tribe. That way, someone couldn't come in and and real estate investor and really upset the economy. And then those poor Israelites would own a house that's only worth half of what they paid for it. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing, huh? So... Every 50 years, everything would return back to its family, back to its possession. And there would be rest. Listen to this, verse 11. And the 50th year will be a jubilee to you. And in it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. And you shall eat its produce from the field. Wait a minute. Remember, every seven years was a sabbatical year, right? So that means the 49th year was a sabbatical year. The 50th year was another one. Back to back. That means that in the year of Jubilee and the year before that, you were supposed to let the land rest. So the land would rest one full year, a second full year, all the way around until it was time to to plant And then toward the end of the year before you receive the next harvest. So the Lord was telling his people, hey, this is how I want you to give the land a rest. But what did he say? When you do it, the land will take care of you. Ultimately, what's he saying? I will take care of you. I'll give you what you need. But folks, they never trusted him enough to follow through with the promise that he gave them. I mean, literally, you can almost find no years of Jubilee in their history where they actually celebrated it, where they actually did what God had intended, where they actually trusted Him to fulfill His promise to them. Don't we do stuff like that today? Doesn't God give us promises today that just seem to be too good to be true and I'm not really sure if I can really stick my neck out that far? But God's true. His his promises are true. We can put our faith and our trust in Him. Listen, verse 13, it says, For in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. 
Who owned the people? Make it easy for you. You remember who owned the land? That was God. Who owned the people? God. In the year of Jubilee, they went back to their possession. It was an emphasis on, I'm taking care of you. Here I am. I'm going to show you. Guys, if you'll just do this, every sixth year, I'm going to give you so much that you don't even have to plant the seventh year. You just rest. Take that whole year off. Is there anybody that would not like that? <laughs> Take that whole year off. And just go do something with your family. Go, go enjoy life. And I'll take care. I'll give you everything you need during that year. And every 50th year, I want you to do it for two years. And trust me, I'm going to meet your needs. Verse 14 If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. No taking advantage of each other. I feel there's this silly show on TV called American Pickers. Anybody ever seen that? Yeah, I don't know why I watch it. But these guys go around to, to all these farms in the middle of no place. And they root around in their junk looking for something that's worth something. And then they make an offer and the poor old fella or old woman who's a part of that place doesn't know that it's really worth $800 million. So she sells it to them for a quarter and they go off and and make a mint. Well, it's not quite that bad. But that's the concept of it. That's the concept of the show. Finding some treasure that somebody doesn't know that they have. Well, God said, listen, whether you buy something from your neighbor or he buys something from you, don't oppress each other. Just pay what's right. Do what's right. Not trying to take advantage of one another. In verse 15, according to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. What's that mean? That the price was set based on the proximity of the year of Jubilee. So if you were far away from the year of Jubilee, then the price would go up. If you're closer to the year of Jubilee, the price would come down. Whatever the case was, it was all set off of that period of time so that there wouldn't be this this gouging when the year of Jubilee was coming up, but that it would be and remain fair for, for everyone, that everyone would be or have equal footing so it was all set from that verse 16 according to the multitude of years you will increase its price and according to the fewer number of years you'll diminish its price for he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crop so that's how they would set their price for the land or for the land to be redeemed we'll see it again therefore you shall not oppress one another but you shall fear the lord your god for i am the lord your god god says listen just just be fair with each other. Don't you wish, wouldn't that take all the, the pain out of buying anything? You know, like when you go buy that used car and the, the fellow's telling you, oh yeah, this car was owned by a little old woman who only drove it on Sundays. She changed the oil every day that she was supposed to, didn't miss a maintenance. This is and you know what? I just, she just, I just got it for a song and I'm willing to sell it to you. How many times have you heard that story? Folks, there's not that many little old ladies that are selling those vehicles. 
They're just working it. Wouldn't it be nice if people follow what God said, what God laid out and said, don't oppress each other. Don't take advantage of each other. Do what's fair. Do what's right. Do what's right by one another. And why? Because I'm the Lord your God. And I'm telling you not to take advantage of one another. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them and you will dwell in the land in safety. Listen, on every sabbatical year, which was every seventh year, right? The seventh year was a sabbatical year. On the Feast of Tabernacles, they would read the book of Deuteronomy. And they would read it to their children. And they would teach them the precepts of God, the Lord's commandments to be obedient and see the stories of what happened when they were disobedient and what happened when they were obedient so that the children would learn. So that the children would understand, hey, this God's calling us to observe, to listen, to see, and then to do what his word says, to keep his judgments and perform them. Verse 19, then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. You don't even have to worry about it. Take that year off. You're going to be safe. Nobody's going to attack you. Nobody's going to come in. You're going to have everything you need. I'll take care of you. What would it have been like for a people who celebrated that like God said? Who saw God provide in that way every seven years? And at one time, at least at one time in their life, would experience back-to-back years of God's provision and protection. Now, you think that would change anything about their history or where they ended up? In that case, would it change anything about ours? Oh, the, the promise of the year of Jubilee is to us in a prophetic sense. Jesus Christ has become our Sabbath. Our rest is in him. He gives us rest. And so we put our faith and trust in him, looking forward to that rest that one day we will receive with him at the resurrection. Now he goes on. And in verse, uh, in verse 20, And if you say, What shall we eat the seventh year, since we shall not sow or gather our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three. Did you hear what he said? I'll give you produce enough for three years every six. I bet God kept his promise. Even when they were faithless, I bet he was faithful. And when they went into captivity in Babylon, and Daniel the prophet was wondering, how long are we going to be in captivity, Lord? The Lord showed him in the scriptures that they were to keep a sabbatical year every seven. And Daniel did the math. 490 years comes up to if I if we gave a sabbatical to land every seven years that's 70 years so they spent 70 years in captivity God gave the land its rest and you will sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth until its produce comes in and then you will eat of the old harvest the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. So he's saying, listen, if somebody sells the land and it's not yours, the land's mine, you're leasing it. 
So if you sell that off, you can only sell it off for a period of time until the year of Jubilee, then it returns. Or until someone near of kin redeems it. Here's what he says. And if and in, and in all the land of your possession, you will grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. So if you lost the land and somebody bought it to pay your debt, someone from your family, what the, Greek, or the Hebrew word is goel. It means kinsman redeemer. If you want to understand the story of the kinsman redeemer, read the book of Ruth. The whole book of Ruth is about the kinsman redeemer. Who is our goel? Jesus Christ, who became man so that he could pay our price to redeem us unto himself. And this is where that is being laid out, that concept. So if your brother or your goel will go and buy it, then they were to sell it to him. They couldn't keep it. They had to sell it. They had to give it up. He goes on to say, or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, you have to sell it back, then let him count the years from its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. So they count from the time it was sold to the year of Jubilee, and they set the price. That's what the price is of the land. So it was common. It was, it was easy. It was, it was dependent on the amount of time that it had been in their possession. He goes on in verse 28, But if he's not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold will remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee shall be released, and he will return to his possession. So the land always stayed in the family. That was the concept. Now, there's one exception. That's if you dwelt in a walled city. If a man sells a house in a walled city, that he may redeem it within a year after it's sold, within a full year he may redeem it. So if you sold your place in a walled city, you had a place, you sold it, you had one year to redeem it. You could redeem it in a year. If you didn't redeem it in a year, the other guy got to keep it. The other guy got to keep that land. So, this is what he lays out for us. And it won't be released in the year of Jubilee. Verse 30, If it's not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house and the wall city will, be gone, will belong permanently to him who bought it. Throughout his generations it shall not be released in the year of Jubilee. However, the houses of villages which have no wall around them, will be counted as the fields in the country, and they may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the year of Jubilee. So the only exception is if you had a place within a walled city. If you had a place within a walled city, you had a year to redeem it, otherwise it went. The reason for that is, those places that were within a walled city sold for a lot more money. So the Lord said, you got a year to get it back. If you haven't got it back within that year, it'll remain in the place where it was outside farmland that was a different story altogether now he goes on but verse 32 nevertheless the cities of the levites and the houses in the cities of their possession the levites may redeem at any time the levites guys never got a part of the land the levites for their inheritance received 48 cities of those 48 cities six of them are what's known as cities of refuge We'll talk about those as we get into the next book uh, a little bit more. We'll get a little deeper into that. 
So <clears throat> Levites, it didn't matter what if if the, it was their city, they could always redeem it because that was all they had. They didn't have land anywhere else. All they had was those cities. Their inheritance was the Lord. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the common land of the cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. If one of your brethren, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. If your brother is getting wiped out and you have the ability to give him a loan and help him get back on his feet, God told his people, do it and don't charge him interest. Period. Do it and don't charge him interest so that he can get back on his feet. That's your brother. Take care of your brother. Do what's right. Do what's right by your brother. This is how he lays it out. No usury, no interest. You shall not lend him your money for usury. That means don't lend him anything for interest. Nor lend him your food at a profit. Don't try to make money off him. He's already poor. He's already lost everything. Just help him out. I am the Lord your God. And I brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So God says, hey, I know where you came from. You had nothing when I brought you out of Egypt. And now I'm the one who gave you everything. So I want you who have received, freely you receive, freely give. That's what the word teaches. Remember, Jesus said it like this. He said, listen, there was this guy who owed the king a great sum of money. He owed all this money and he didn't have any way to pay it. And the note came due. So he went to the king and he fell down on his knees. He said, oh, king, uh, give me more time. Give me more time. And the king said to him, hey, uh, you know, you owe me like two million dollars. Oh, just, I just need a little more time and I can, I can make it work. Just a little more time. And the king was moved with compassion. And so he said, your debt's forgiven you. Forget about it. We'll just write that note off. You go your way. So that man got up and he left. And on his way, he came across someone who owed him ten bucks. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded his money. The man cried out to him and said, I just need a little bit more time. I don't have it yet. I don't have it yet. And he said, no more time for you. And he took him to the jailer and he threw him in the jail until the debt was paid. And someone saw it and went back to the king. And said, you know that guy that you forgave like $2 million? He just threw a guy in prison for 10 bucks. And the king went and found him. And he said, I forgave you $2 million and you wouldn't forgive your brother 10 bucks? You go into prison and you stay there until your debt is paid. That's the way God sees it. I take care of you. I want you to take care of your brother. Where you're able, help out. Not always able. But when you are, Scripture lays out, help out. Help out. Be a blessing. Help a brother out. And then he goes on. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor 
and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, but as a hired servant and a sojourner, he will be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. So somebody owed you a bunch of money, couldn't pay. They could give themselves to you as a hired servant. And they would work until the year of Jubilee to pay off their debt. Now, if someone wanted to redeem them, whatever time was left would be the price of redemption so that he could come out of being that indentured servant uh, in that place of slavery. So he says in verse 41, Then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. Remember the year of Jubilee? Everything goes back to how it was. Why? For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, and they shall not be sold as slaves. Over and over again, and we'll continue going through this next week, over and over again, the Lord's going to say, why is this the case in the year of Jubilee? Because I'm forgiving you of so much. I'm giving you so much. I want you to give. I want you in that response in your heart for the thankfulness of what God's given you to give them. So the Lord says, hey, don't treat them bad. Don't, don't be cruel and mean to your slaves. They're really my servants, and they're just leased to you. They're my people. They belong to me. And so the Lord lays out, that should be our attitude when we look at, at those situations. And then when we back up, as we look at what God's laying out for the year of Jubilee, it shouldn't be very hard for you and I to see how that applies to us. Folks, Jesus Christ set us free, paid our debt. We don't owe a thing. One day we'll stand before Almighty God, clothed in the robes of Jesus Christ, with Him standing beside us and saying, Dad, yeah, this is one of my, this is one of my brothers. He's forgiven. His debt's paid. I paid it for him. And we'll enter into a place that, that we can't even begin to fathom. That's what He's done for us. The question for you and I is then, how ought we to live? That being true, what's our part? What's our part in that? We'll pick that up again next week as we continue through. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can be gathered before you. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to study your word, Lord Jesus, and to see. Father, you declared to us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Lord, as we read these words that proceeded straight from your mouth, Father, help us make application. Help us see the wisdom. Help us realize that you are a holy God. And you call us to be a holy people, set apart from the old, trusting and abiding in you. That you are the one who makes us holy. That you are the one that gives us the strength we need. That you're the one that does all the work. All we have to do is trust you. And you, you will pour out your spirit upon us in such a way we won't even be able to hold it. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would continue your perfect work in our hearts and lives. And, Father, that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for your word. Lord, we lift this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.